to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and with songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore I remember you in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I shall say, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Why they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I don't know whether you've got that at the top of your Bible. Have you got that under somewhere under Psalm 42 to the choir master? A maskil, the sons of Korah. Uh, the sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing, a great ministry that would be. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 19 describes them in action. Uh, the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So I want you to imagine that they're all like Steve Hawkins. Okay, You know if you're in a room with Steve Hawkins, but actually, although he's gone missing, he actually is biblically correct, and we need to put some gusto into it, because we're called to praise God with a loud voice. So we should go from church uh, with a little bit of a dry feeling in our throats. We should go from church saying, I'd love a drink of coffee, because, it's just a, because that's what God wants us to He wants us to give everything in worshipping him. So the heading implies that this psalm was probably uh, used in public worship and therefore sung. And we need to remember that, that the psalms that we are reading are sung. And they are actually poems. When we are singing them and reading them now, we've lost the sort of poem edge to them because of our English language. So... One of their roles is to awaken 
and touch and for us to experience, as it were, the emotional side of what God wants to do with us. They're supposed to get under the skin. They're supposed to awake all sorts of emotions, both good and bad. It's supposed to get there, in there, in us. So what we should expect in singing something like Psalm 42 is that we should expect some people in the congregation that would be weeping under their circumstances because it's got there. And others over here would be delighting in God. And that's the whole idea. And I want to ask you that question. Are your emotions awake to, to what God wants to do with you? Or is it just your thoughts that you think needs to be touched with God. It's not true. It's not just your thoughts. We're spirit and truth people. We need our whole being touched with God. And if we can be open both to the good things and the bad things in our emotions, in the presence of God, then God can begin to do a work in us. And that's the idea of this. So it is massively important that we allow God to touch us and let him in there and drop the guard so that he can minister to us. Therefore, uh, I want to encourage you, please be an emotional people. (laughs) Don't just be a thought people. The psalm is also called a mascal. It's not clear what the word means. And that's why most people don't ever bother to translate it because they haven't got a clue. And uh, it comes from a Hebrew word that actually means to make someone wise or to instruct someone. So when applied, it means that it is there to instruct you. It is there to educate you. It is there to change you. And so part of what the, what, part of what the, the psalm, psalmist is trying to do is say, hey, I want to get in touch with your emotions. I want you to feel and understand the presence of God and all that. But also, I don't want you to stay there. And it's really interesting. I would say that if you've got a bunch of pastors together today, the biggest problem that the bunch of pastors have is not the word of God it's not even, even us believing in the Word of God. It's actually a, a day where, where people look at the Word of God and it doesn't instruct them and therefore change them. The people are, don't go and say, before we have dinner, what are the things that we now need to change because of Nigel's sermon? There isn't that, isn't it? There's, you know, the gravy's boiling over and the beef's a bit whatever, well, in the Harmon family, and you know, that sort of stuff. But it's really interesting that the, the psalmist and the psalm actually were saying, this is instructive. It is designed for you to evaluate where you are and make the changes appropriately. So today is about, if I can, I want to try and do what the psalmist did. I want to try and see whether I can touch your emotions, which means some of you will go amen and some of you will be provoked. That's true. But also, I want to ask for your part, will you allow Psalm 42 to instruct you? Don't just know it, change because of it. Because that was what was right at the very start. One of the prominent emotion uh, conditions in this psalm is what is commonly called spiritual depression. 
So that's uh, it's, it's good for the next half an hour then. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the psalmist is actually giving instructions into uh, that subject. And uh, I just want to say this. I, I cannot better, and I, I just can't, it's just impossible, to, to better Martin Lloyd-Jones on this subject. In fact, when I've looked through, all the commentators refer back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, except those that were born before him. And uh, they, they, don't, uh, they only do it prophetically. But I just, wanna, I just want to recommend um, a book to you and say, look, you know, I'm not going to give this the justice that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives. It is an excellent book. It is the best one that I know. He's better than me that doing this. In fact, the best thing is that you read the book rather than listen to the sermon. So, and it is this. It's a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures. It's based on Psalm 42, and it's better than me. Just simply that. By the book. But in the foreword to the book, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Now, I said that I was going to offend you or touch your emotions. Here, here it comes. Please... I just want you to know this. I am not writing this. I'm just, just quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay? He said it, and he's in glory. So you can't write him a letter. But he said this. Christian people, writes Lloyd-Jones, too often seem perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and an absence of joy. We're off to church. Mm. Cell group tonight. Mm. Prayer meeting. Mm. So that's the thing. Yeah, no, I better not do it anymore. The, but he goes on, he says, there is no question at all that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. He says, people, he says, not me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the reason, one of the reasons that people are not saved is that we are miserable. I'm glad you said that, Martin, because I would never have said that. So, there's the first bit of emotion. Let's look at an overview of Psalm 42 before we get into the nuts and bolts of it. Psalm 42, verse 3, uh, says that his enemies say to me all day long, where is your God? And verse 10 says the same thing. It, it only describes the effect as a deadly wound. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And the taunt, where is your God? It implies that something else has gone wrong too, or they wouldn't be saying it. They wouldn't be saying, where is your God? It looks to them as if the God they worship has abandoned them. It looks to them. The internal, uh, the emotional condition of the psalmist is depressed. (laughs) Full of turmoil, verse 5 and verse 11, describes cast down and in turmoil. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. I want to ask you to hand up whether you've known that one. So they are discouraged to the point of crying themselves to sleep. 
We know that one, don't we? Verse 7, he says that it feels like drowning. All your waves, your breakers and waves have come over me. It's not just that I'm in turmoil. It's that it just keeps coming and coming. I don't seem to be able to throw this off. It keeps waving over me, wave after wave after wave of turmoil. Happy? (laughs) But in all of this, he's fighting for God. He's experiencing this, crying at night, waves of turmoil, cast down. But look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you, are, with, are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for, again, I, uh, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He is not surrendering to the emotions of discouragement. He is taking this, I will fight this. And the question is, with all our discouragement, are we going to be biblical people that fight discouragement? Are we going to be biblical people? Are we going to be psalm people? So that when the waves come and the tears come, Are we standing up in the middle of the tears and going, no, not having it, will not have it. Is that you? Is that how you respond? Or are you a sort of lie down and just sort of think, oh, that's, I'm finished here. I want to just confess to you, I can't tell you how many times that I have felt that emotion. I I don't know. It's been something that has been with me uh, almost all of my life. My, um, as, a, as a child, uh, my, my sort of, uh, Rupert and, and, uh, and Silas are going to laugh in this, what uh, my child reports, it would say, lacks confidence. Uh, when I got married, Callie's understanding of me was glass half full. She said, that, why, and, and it is part of my demeanour. And because it is part of my demeanour, I have to know this. And I have to face it up with myself. So sometimes I do have to come and say, hope in God, Nigel. Come on, hope in God. I have to face the enemy almost looking at it and go, hope in God. So it's, it's that sort of thing. I have to think, no, this, this will not happen as you perceive it. This will not pass as it looks like. This emotion is not real for you. I have to do that and sort of have a shout. And so I usually say to myself this. I say, Nigel, you have a choice here. You, will, you need to look at Jesus right now. And this is something that goes on with me. You can ask that. You can check Callie for this one. Uh, she will tell you that sort of thing, that I am a negative first person. I am biblically and sinfully wrong in doing that. I am wrong. 
It is a sin. Because I do not line myself up with Scripture. But one of the things that I know is that I'm going to stand and fight back with the psalmist. So I'm saying it is part of my natural disposition, but I'm going to fight in God. His external circumstances are very uh, oppressing. His internal emotional uh, condition is depressed, but he's fighting for hope. And the really remarkable thing at the end of this psalm is that he's still fighting, but he's not where he wants to be. And the last word of the psalm and the last words of the next psalm are, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. And the conclusion that I've come to is that I've not got to be a, a person that fights for occasions. I've actually been called to fight for hope for the rest of my life. Because the psalmist is still saying the same things at the end. And I want to ask you, join me. Let's fight for hope for the rest of our lives. The problem with this psalm is that it is a bittersweet ending. Is it a happy ending? Like almost everything in life, it's mixed. By the end, his faith is really is amazing. His fight is strong, but he's not where he wants to be. The reality of life is this, that the things that you face right now may never change. In fact, the things that you face right now may get worse. They just may. They may not be as good as they are now. For some of you, they will get better. But the psalmist says that the rescue of this situation is not the condition that you're standing, but the way that you view it. The way that you view it. We were talking about healing late. Just, uh, we were just praying for the sick. The most extraordinary thing that I ever saw was traveling in China, seeing a guy that was paralyzed, lying on a bed, uh, with the, only the movement of his head. He was pastoring a church and praying for the sick. And here's the mad thing. The sick got healed. I watched the sick. I watched the blind see, the lame walk, and people transformed in a moment in a queue to his bed. Now, you would want to say this, wouldn't you? That ain't fair. It just ain't fair. But this was a guy that worshipped with just his head because he realised that his view of God was going to dominate him. So... Let's look at how the psalmist responds to discouragement. There are six ways. uh, This is where I've, you know, it's not unique. You know this. There are six ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones says them. I'm just going to tell them you. Except I'll do it in a Midland accent. Okay? I'll try, what I've tried to do is that try to put them in order so they make a little bit of sense as we we go on. And I'm going to finish with a non-Martin Lloyd-Jones piece on the end. So six things that Martin Lloyd-Jones says and one thing that Nigel Lloyd thinks is stunning. Okay. So what do you do to discouragement? How do you respond to spiritual depression? The first one is that he asks God why. First, he responds to his circumstances 
at one point by asking God why. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning before, uh, because of the oppression of the enemy? The word forgotten really is a bit of an overstatement, isn't it? Uh, and he knows it. He has just said, verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night his song is with me. So there's an imbalance here. There's always an imbalance uh, with our emotions. What he means that is, it looks like God has forgotten him. It feels like God has forgotten him. God hasn't forgotten him. But why aren't the enemies driven back and consumed? Why is the situation not changing? It would be good if all of us were so composed and calm in the point of crisis. To just, you know, as crisis overwhelms us, just to be able to say, the Lord's with me. To tranquilly live in peace as battles overwhelm us. As our arm drops off, we worship with the other one. As the other arm drops, we lift our leg in praise. As the leg drops off, we just nod our head in adoration to our God until we're just a bundle, but still I will praise the Lord. Isn't that us all? No, it isn't. Well, it isn't me anyway. It might be you. So, I don't know. I just want to say this, that I think it would be good for us if we were so composed and careful with our expressions of discouragements. But that's not the way that we are. And in the midst of our emotions, I think there is a challenge to be careful with what we say and to be careful with who we have a go at. Because what we do is that here's the psalmist going, Why, God? Why? And by the way, if the husband walks in, it's going to be him that gets it. So there's levels of this, isn't there? It is a legitimate question. And he may not have asked the question with actually theological and good emotional precision. But it will prove in time that he, d- he didn't mean what he was saying. So one of the checks that I want to ask you in the midst of depression is to ask yourself this. Do you mean what you say? Is it actually true what you are saying? Is it both theologically correct and actually correct? Ask yourself those sorts of questions. He asks God why, but what he was saying is not true. And you have to come to that conclusion. You have to allow that to come in. You can ask it if you like, but it won't eventually take you down to the right area. So, please, ask, so check. Is what you are saying true? Secondly, he affirms God's sovereign love. In the midst of discouragement, he affirms God's sovereign love for him. Verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Verse 5 and verse 11, he calls God my salvation and my God. Even though it looks like God has forgotten him, 
It appears that his enemies think that God has forgotten him. He never stops believing in the absolute sovereignty of God over all his difficulties. So in the end, verse 7, he says, All your breakers and waves have gone over me. Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In other words, all his crashing and tumultuous and oppressing and discouraging circumstances are the waves of God. Your waves. This is your waves. They're your breakers. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That he's saying that, look, you're in this. You're in the midst of this. You're there somewhere. In other words, he never loses grip on a great truth about God. God's sovereign. God's in this. God knows about this. God is controlling this. God is reigning. God is ruling. God is in charge. God knows the beginning from the end. He's in this. It's a wave and a breaker, but he's in this. And it's interesting that he's using this as ballast for faith. So it's, it's anchoring him. It's keeping him from being capsized by his emotions. Emotions are good, but not when they capsize our faith. And what he's actually coming to the conclusion is this. He's sort of saying this. He's saying, look, this is awful. And he's admitting that. But God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's addressing almost himself as he does, as he works through this. God is in control of this. Don't understand it. But God is in this. So that's the second thing that he says. The third thing is that he sings to the Lord at night, pleading for his life. Verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Well, I don't think this is a song of jubilant hope. Uh, He doesn't feel jubilant. He's actually seeking hope. This isn't a prayer. uh, This is a pleading song. This is a song to give, uh, for God to give him his life back. And uh, it's amazing that he's singing this prayer. My guess is that this actually song is, is the product of Psalm 42. What he sang at night is what we now read. This very psalm is a nighttime prayer. Why is it not a daytime prayer? Because the truth is this things get worse at night, don't they? It's quite clear. I mean, it's interesting. We, we, used, to be, we used to be young. You, I know some of you find that difficult to believe. And we used to take our young people away for weekends. Do you know that? Young people, pastoral problems begin at somewhere at 11. They never happen at 3 or 2 or 11. In fact, they never happen at 9 because they're never there. But we used to take them away for a weekend and Callie and I would go to bed with our kids, little me, put the kids in the cot and all that sort of stuff and there'd be hammers on our... And there'd be a queue. He's fallen out with her. She's done that. They are demonic. 
this has happened, you know, all, all that, they are gay. All, I mean, it would all come out. And it all comes out, 11, and you almost think, what on earth does? So why is it at night that you need to sing? It's because at night your thoughts get distorted. It is literally that. And the psalm's saying, look, and not many of us can compose songs, I, I guess. But the answer is this, that the more difficult that it gets, the more you should worship. That's the issue here. The harder it is, the more you should worship. The more you should sing. The more you should get the CD on or the iPlayer on or, or whatever it is, or in my case, the tape player on. It's all right, it's gone now, you're all right. But, but it, it's that sort of, it's get it on. Get it on loud. Join in with it. The answer through is always worship. Amen. It brings perspective to you. The worse that you get, the more you should worship. The more difficult the circumstances, the more you should worship. The harder it is, the more you should worship. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's interesting that lifestyle choices are this. If it's hard, we won't. The psalmist says the opposite. He said, if you want to be released in this, if you want to be helped in this, if you want to see God break through this, if you want to see it at its worst in regard to perception, worship. It is the answer. It really is the answer. It's difficult. Worship. Fourth, he preaches to his own soul. I love this. The psalmist does this. Verse 5, look at this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul? I haven't got a clue. It's that sort of thing. You know, hope in God. Okay. Oh, it's that sort of thing. For, for I will praise him, my salvation and my God. Have you heard this before? Of course you have. How many times in worship have we heard? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Carry on. Praise his name. How does this work? It works like this. What is your soul? Here. It's here. Who are you preaching to? You're preaching to here. Suddenly, you've all become gospel preachers. And it literally is this. It does literally mean this. Look, soul. Bless the Lord. I don't feel like it. Did you hear me? Soul, bless the Lord. Okay. And and it is that. You, the psalmist tells you that the answer through is the preaching of the gospel to yourself. And this is a a fight, I believe, of faith. That we need to preach truth to ourselves. I heard of a series of cards this week. For the first time. And these cards are the private possession of Rachel Harmon. And I don't know how big they are. I don't know whether it's this big or this big. I would imagine being married to Phil, they are this big. If she was married to me, they would be this big. But they're married to Phil, so they're this big. And then there's the rest of the Harmon family, so they must be enormous. So, and it was interesting. She was sharing in our thinking my group this week and she was just sharing that when she woke up in the morning she was full of stuff being fed stuff so the first thing that she did i i don't know whether she didn't have a shower that worried me 
It worried me that, did she wash her hair? Did she make breakfast? I don't know. It worried me. See, I always worry about the heart of the other thing. And she said, she got out the cards. And the first thing that she did in the morning, and we were all there going, oh, really? Because I just thought, I've never written a card in my life. I've written a Christmas card occasionally. But, and then she was saying, I got up in the morning and I read this. And I went, yes. And then I read another one. I went, yes. And then I read another one. I went, yes. And then I read another one. I went, yes. And then she thought, I ought to tell Phil. And Phil said, didn't know anything about the cards. Amazing marriage, but great cards. <laughs> but so, and it was just extraordinary. But what she was doing was actually what was happening here in the psalm. She was going, I'm having none of this. And who am I preaching to? Me. I'm preaching to me. And you have to ask this question. Sometimes we get fed some rubbish in our head, don't we? I don't know, I don't know whether you're like me. I believe a mumbo-gumbo sometimes. And ask this the question, who is talking mumbo-gumbo to you? Well, the, the spiritually aware amongst you will say, it is the devil. To be honest, I don't care a fig whether it's the devil or who it is. The psalmist said the way through, out and the other side, is for you to preach to your soul. So what do you need to preach to your soul? Well, you wonderfully are this side of the cross. You are this side of it. You are not where the psalmist is. You have Jesus Christ crucified for you, sins dealt with, triumphant over death. So the main preach, the thing that you preach to yourself is the gospel. You get up and you go, my sins are buried. <laughs> you do that. I've been raised to Christ. Come on. It literally is this. I've been exalted, seated to the right hand of the Father. If God is for me, who can be against us? Who can separate me from the love of Christ? Can hardship? No. No. It's, it literally is getting these truths into our... It's the gospel that will release us. If you are not preaching the gospel to you, you will not preach the gospel to other people. If it doesn't work in you, it won't work for anybody else. Because you'll go, well, no, I'm preaching the gospel. And you think, no, it doesn't do that. Learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Better than that, respond to it. Do I see a hand? Yes, me. I'll respond. Well, please come forward and I'll pray with you. I'm coming. It's literally, it's a gospel message. You think, I'm mad. He's gone loose. You should. You should literally. Do you believe this, Nigel? Yes, I do. Then respond. I'm coming. Okay. Please pray for me. Dear Lord Jesus, I don't know. Please, will you get into prayer? Yes, I will. Holy Spirit, come upon him. Okay. Come on. Do something with yourselves, for heaven's sake. Before the muesli. Come on. Oh, we better move on. (laughs) Joel wouldn't do that, would he? He did, he did preach at the Brighton Conference with half a beard, though, didn't he? The only reason that I don't do that is that I'm not man enough to grow half a beard. <laughs> he remembers his past experiences. 
He calls his experiences into mind. He remembers the past. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go in the throng and lead the procession to the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You can do that. Much could be said here about the importance of corporate worship. But I want to ask you, don't make these times and choose these times and just sort of say, well, I can live without this. There is a spiritual dynamic of the multitude worshipping. You can worship, which you are called to do, but there's something that God does in your heart and changes you when people worship. What the psalmist was saying, you say, look, you know, I, I, you know, I'm with the throng, I'm with the procession, I'm, I'm with glad shouts. There was a multitude. I don't know whether you've ever been with thousands, but I, I, I have to say, I sat by Steve Hawkins today. I could not hear anybody apart from Steve Hawkins. He's the loudest person I've ever known, and I thought the answer was sing louder. So I, you know. I'm, I'm singing as loud as I possibly do. At one point, I think, oh, the only answer to this is shout. Shout. Oh, God, God, come on. And you realize that still you can't step. But actually, there is a spiritual dynamic when multitudes get together and worship God. There's something that happens to you when you go in the throng, when you get in the multitude, when you stand amongst them. That's why sometimes it's sometimes, you know, please don't slip in at the back. Get in amongst the multitude because God wants to do something in your heart. He wants to touch you and change you and help your perspective. Don't ever think, well, just sit on the end here. You know, I, I mean, in my church in Rugeley, I had a guy that I can't mention his name. He's still there. And he, he, used, to, he used to say, worship wasn't as good today. He would sort of go, three out of ten. And he'd come at the end of the sermon, he'd come to me and say, wasn't your best, was it? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm half full. (laughs) (laughs) And I I realised that actually, this can be how we can come to church. We can come, you know, well, I'll just sort of sit up and see what God does. Preaching, not as good as Joel Virgo. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones. Worship, No. It was Phil Armand anyway. No. And we can, we can sort of do that. And actually, here is the spiritual dimension. When you get in the center of corporate worship, God meets with you. Maybe your circumstances haven't changed because you actually haven't put yourself in the center of corporate worship. Maybe you are a good private singer. He's my private dancer. Maybe it's that sort of Maybe it's that sort of thing. But actually, the psalmist said, that's valuable, but this also is valuable. You can't have one without the other. You have to have them both. You need them both. Because we're pressing. Pressing into God together helps each other. Here we go. Sixth, thirst for God. Needs to thirst. It's all... Okay. The psalmist thirsts for God like a deer pants for a stream. 
Phew, one and two. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What makes this so beautiful and so crucial for us is that he's not thirsting for a circumstance change. He is not thirsting that for an escape from his enemies or even their destruction. He is thirsting for God. Take this away from me. Thirst for God. This is tough. Thirst for God. This is unfair. Thirst for God. I didn't expect that to happen. Thirst for God. The psalmist actually only has one answer. It's not wrong to want to pray for relief. And it's sometimes right to pray for the defeat of our enemies. We must do that. But actually what the psalmist said, it's more important to pray for God himself to come to you. When we think of the God of the Psalms, <laughs> we know that the, the God of the Psalms knew this. as something in their, their being. They knew that God could satisfy them. I want to ask you a question. What will satisfy you right now? What will satisfy you right now? Well, there's A and there's B. The psalmist said that the only thing will satisfy you is God. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? But actually, it's really true. There are a few images that are more vivid than a deer punting for water in the midst of a drought. It must be a shocking image, really. It's a, an animal on the verge of death dying, it's an unbearable heat, it's, it's a weariness to the point of death. And here is God seen as the source of life and the only one that can quench that inner longing that you have right now. God is not just God, he's the living God. He brings water into the desert. He brings life where there is no life. He does it. It tells us also of our behaviour, how we should be. That we should be a panting people. A panting people. We should be deer-like. <laughs> how should people know? It would be good to... Panting people, church, Wrexham. It's good though, isn't it? It's nice. Makes some people say, well, what was that all about? It's, it, I want to I meet with you. I want to meet with you. I don't want to meet just in your temple. I want to meet with you. And, and I wonder whether that's, you know, sometimes we get prescriptive about church. Sometimes we get judgmental sometimes we you know, that it's really interesting isn't it <laughs> the way that we view church let me ask you a real question when was the last time that you panted for God 
When was, the, when was the last time that the living God met with your thirst? Wow. The psalmist knew that he could and that he would and that streams of living water, as we know, will flow out. This is the non-Martin Lloyd-Jones thing. Because I think if we're going to thirst, we have to work out who we are thirsting for. If you look at the end of the verse 2, the psalmist says this, When will I come and appear before God? When will I appear before God? <laughs> and for the psalmist, that was a real question. But for us, we have an answer to that question. When will I appear before God? John 14, verse 9, Jesus said this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul said that when we become Christians, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, has shined in our hearts. So the psalmist was asking a question. When can I come and appear before God? And we have a glorious answer to that, that is found in the gospel. And Paul's celebrating a huge privilege that we have, a privilege that the psalmist didn't have, the vision of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see the face of Jesus Christ, we see God. When we look at him, when we read about him, when we worship him, when we enjoy him, when we feel his presence, we, we are in the presence of God. Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Find God through the image of Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. John 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. We can know God through Jesus. The gospel unlocked the door to God. Jesus opened it on the cross. And we have walked in gloriously. The psalmist could ask the question, when I, can I come and appear before God? And all of us sitting in this room because of a new covenant and Jesus on the cross can ask the question, we can go, and right now. <laughs> right now. He could not answer that question. But you can, we can. Is mad. Exodus 33 verse 20. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. It's Old Testament. And we can because of Jesus. Don't you love him because of that? I can approach with confidence because of Jesus. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied. What you and I would see, Ezekiel 1.26, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human experience, appearance. He's prophesying about a human in heaven, Jesus, interceding for us. So when you worship Jesus, 
when you look at Jesus, when you gaze and magnify Jesus, when you wonder at Jesus, when you see an unblemished mirror of God, how privileged is that? The psalmist was battling through with the question, when will I see God? You're not battling through that. You don't have to battle with that same question. You can see God in the face of Jesus Christ right now, anytime, any way that you like. It's extraordinary. You can approach him. The psalmist asked the question, you are the living answers of that question. Theologians use this word in regard to seeing God in Jesus. The word they use is effulgence. I tried it in the dictionary. I couldn't find it, really. What on earth does that mean? Is that in the Oxford English? Effulgence means this. It means shining forth brilliantly. Meaning the more that you look at Jesus, the more God will shine forth brilliantly. So, here's the last thing before we do an unfinally finally. Here's the last thing. You are not having to stand alone in this. You can approach and find God in the midst of what you are going through. There is nothing there any longer to stop you approaching God at any time and all because of Jesus. And if you don't know the reality of the God of the psalmist, let me say to you, you find him through Jesus. You find him in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. How do I find God? You find God in Jesus. You find God in the gospel. You find God in his death, his resurrection for sinners like you. He, he died in your place exchanging your sin and the anger of God for love and mercy so that you can have access to him. So even today, if you are not a Christian, you can know God because of what Jesus did for you. And sometimes these things are not worth just contemplating. The problem, if we remember, as the psalmist started, was to do with the issue of what this psalm was about. One, it was a poetry, and it affects our emotions. Secondly, it was about instruction. Here's the instruction. If you do not know God, you can find him in Jesus Christ. If you do not know God, you can approach him now and become a Christian because of the gospel. You can respond right now. Well, I need to weigh up this. I need to think about this. No, you don't. You need to be instructed by it. What would you say to the Christian? What do we say to the Christians in, in Psalm 42? We say this. You need to do this. What do we say to the non-Christians? You need to do this. You need to respond to Jesus now. You need to say, you died for me. You were raised for me. You dealt with my sins. I am grateful. I am a sinner. Saved by grace. It is as simple as that. Be instructed by the Psalms. Let's pray. We stand. <coughs> I want to just pray two things, really. I just want to pray, firstly, for those that are struggling 
with what might be loosely called spiritual de- depression or the emotions of this, this psalm. I'm not going to pull you to the front because I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's not kind to you. And, uh, I don't want to bring condemnation to you. But I want to ask, I want to pray for you. And then I just want to pray uh, for the gospel <laughs> that we might, it might be released amongst us, okay? Let's pray and then we'll sing, I think, Phil, won't we? Yeah. Okay. Father, I want to pray for anyone in this room that is cast down, is in turmoil, who has asked the question, where is your God? Whose tears have been their food day and night. And I want to ask you, gracious God, would you come and meet with them? Well, I know that we've had a little bit of fun here, but the reality is that you are a God of mercy and desire to meet with your people. So, Lord, I want to pray, would you come to them in their hour and hours of darkness? And would you show them yourself? I want to pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen them to be able to take on some of the things that we've seen here and see these things are not just taught and caught. They come with the power of the Holy Spirit to help. That the Holy Spirit is our helper and will help us through. So I cry out to you, God of heaven, would you bring help to the downcast in Jesus' name? Would you bring help? And Father, I want to pray for those that do not know you uh, this morning. I want to pray, Lord, that they might see that you are not just a God who is far off, but that you are a God who is near. And that, Lord, that you are near to them right now. And we pray, Lord, for the light of the gospel to shine right now. We ask for Jesus Christ to come and to show to them that he is their saviour, their Lord and their King, and that they can walk freely into his arms this morning, a sinner saved by grace. So let your gospel come and help, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.